Well, good morning once again. And uh, just to let you know, my name is Brian Claybrook. I'm not the senior pastor. Many of you know that. I serve on staff as the worship pastor over the the modern services, so I don't have the opportunity to be with you uh, as much as I would like to be, and this month I do. Uh, I started this thing off a few weeks ago, and, and I get to end it this week as well, and so you've had to endure a whole month of not hearing from the pastor and hearing from some of us staff guys, but you made it. You finally made it, yes. <laughs> well, 30 minutes, and then you've made it. Okay, so uh, bear with me, but uh, I know I'm excited to do this. Uh, it's always a privilege and an honor for me uh, to be here, and next week we start our, our Advent series. We're looking forward to that, so please uh, plan to join us uh, for that, and so this morning, uh, I wanted to talk to you about a broken system. And, uh, you know, we live in, in uh, a country that we have a system of government. There are systems all around us that we use to, to, in, in our lives. We have a system of government that we adhere to. Uh, we have certain rules and regulations and things that we uh, abide by. And there are systems all around us. Sometimes, though, the systems can find their way into the religious circle. And we can begin to make systems out of religion and out of our belief, and sometimes that can get us into trouble. And we're going to see from one of Jesus' parables this morning that uh, that can be the case. And sometimes when we try to put too many systems on our beliefs, it can cause some issues. And so we're going to be looking this morning at the parable of the wicked tenants. It's found in Luke chapter 20, if you want to begin to turn there. Uh, it'll also be on the screen shortly when we begin, but this is uh, the parable of the wicked tenants. Your version might say a different title. There are different titles given for this parable, but for the sake of this morning, we're going to call it the parable of the wicked tenants, found in Luke chapter 20, verse 9 through 18. It's actually found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, but we're going to be looking at Luke's account, and we'll kind of reference some of the other accounts as well. But what we need to know before we look at this parable is what's happening when Jesus tells this parable, because that's really important. This is, when Jesus speaks this parable, the middle of Holy Week. This is the week that Jesus comes into Jerusalem, his last week on earth before he's going to be crucified. This is, you remember, Monday, he comes in the triumphal entry, he comes in, Hosanna in the highest. It seems like people are finally receiving Jesus as he should be received. Uh, we know, however, that that is short-lived. On Tuesday, he goes with his followers to the temple, and you remember this scene. Jesus gets to the temple, and he does not like what he sees at the temple. Uh, they've set up businesses there. They're profiting for things at the temple. And Jesus is outraged at this. He begins to throw tables over. He begins to kick people out. At one point, he makes a whip and begins to physically drive people out of the temple. He tells people, this is, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've made this a den of thieves. This is not what this is supposed to be. This is Wednesday of, or this is Tuesday of Holy Week. Now remember, it's the religious leaders who are the ones that have allowed this to happen. They are the ones that set up this system. They are the ones that allowed this to take place at the temple. And Jesus is coming in and he's saying, no, this is not how this should be. This is not how this should be. And these religious leaders, they've been after Jesus this whole time. They've been looking for fault. They've been trying to accuse him, trying to trick him, looking for their opportunity. And this is the straw that broke the camel's back for the religious leaders. They come into this system that they set up at the temple, and Jesus says, no, this is not how it should be. He kicks everyone out. 
And to the religious leaders, they say, this is, what, what is going on here? So then on Wednesday, the next day, Jesus comes back to the temple. He's walking through the crowd. He's teaching the people, and the religious leaders are there. And they come up to him. You can read about this at the beginning of, of, of chapter 20. They come up to Jesus and say, by what authority do you do these things? They're saying, what gives you the right, Jesus, to mess with our system? We're the ones that have the authority. We're the ones that are in charge. What right do you have? What authority do you have, Jesus, to do any of this? And Jesus is not going to answer their question, as Jesus does so often. Sometimes he'll just give them a question back. Sometimes he'll tell a story. And Jesus is going to tell this parable to answer that question. The parable of the wicked tenants comes off of the heels of the question, by what authority do you have to do any of this? And he says, let me tell you a story. And it says this. Let's just jump in. He began to tell the people this parable. I want to stop right there for a second because it says he began to tell the people this parable. Because there's people around. Jesus is a big deal. There's a lot of people coming in. There's a lot of people wanting to hear from him, wanting to hear about him, wanting to see what he's going to do and how he's going to teach. There are a lot of people there. But make no mistake, this parable is for the religious leaders. They even admit that at the end of the parable. The religious leaders say they, they, they understood this parable was aimed at them. But it says he was, he was telling the people this parable. Another thing that we need to understand about this parable is that this is a prophetic parable. Jesus taught 39 different parables throughout his ministry. A lot of them were these stories. He just said, I'm going to weed out the chaff. A lot of you are not receiving me as I should be received. And it got to a point in his ministry where he said, no more of this. I'm going to weed out the chaff. I'm going to begin to deliberately confuse you. You really want to know the answer? Then you're going to have to unlock the mystery of this parable. And he was telling these parables. Oftentimes they were just stories. But here we come to a parable that is a prophetic utterance of Christ. He's going to tell of things that have not yet happened. He's going to foretell of things that have not yet happened. Not only that, but he's going to look back on the entire history of Israel with one story. This is going to be a sweeping history of the nation of Israel up to this point. This is a really important parable he began to tell to the people. And he says this, A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. This is a very common occurrence in this day. Uh, you see, you would, plant, uh, you would plant your crops, your grains and those types of things down in the valley. But you would plant your vineyards on the sides of hills. It's very possible that even at the temple, they could have looked around or walked outside and seen on the hilltops these vineyards. Very common occurrence in this day. They would plant these these vineyards on the sides of hills. And in Matthew's account, it actually gives us a little insight into the vineyard a little bit more. It says that great care was given into the planting of this vineyard. That there was a hedge of protection that was put around it. That there was a wine press put in the center. That there was a tower built so that people could watch over the entire vineyard. That nothing is coming in that shouldn't be coming in. Very great care is given into the planting of this vineyard. And it says that uh, he planted a vineyard and he let it out to tenants or he rented it out. This would be absentee ownership. Very common in that day just like in uh, today. Maybe uh, the owner needs to go away or, or he needs to rent it out to farmers that have special skills. They would come in and they would work the ground. And what is also important to note is that everything would have been worked out up front. A contract would have been made between the owner and the tenants. They would have agreed upon how the, 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 the vineyard was to be worked. 
how it was to be produced. They would have talked about the harvest, when the harvest happens. The owner gets his percentage, what that percentage is. They would have worked all of this out up front in the beginning. Contract workers agreed upon prices, agreed upon producing percentages, everything. Nothing is unusual to the listener at this point. Remember, this is not to us. The Jews are the audience. We've got to put ourselves in their shoes. And so far to the Jew that is there in the temple that morning, everything seems on the up and up. Then in verse 10, it says this, when the time had come, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Very common. The time had come, what is that? That is referring to the harvest. The harvest has come. The owner says, okay, I need to get what is mine. I'm going to send one of my servants. I'm not going to go. I'm going to send one of my servants to go get what is rightfully mine. The servant would go. He would get what is his, and he would take it back. Nothing unusual yet. What is not common, however, is the response of the tenants. It says this, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And this is the moment that so often happens. What Jesus does is he introduces the shock to the story. He introduces that moment that makes you go, wait a minute, what? Well, that's not right. And so this owner sends his servant to get what is rightfully his. And not only does he not receive that, they beat this man and they send him away empty-handed. This is illegal activity especially to the, in the eyes of the Jews that is there, that is hearing this, is trying to live a righteous life, trying to live a God-honoring life. This is outrageous. Not only that they didn't give him what was rightfully his, but it says that he beat the man. The word beat is a strong word here. Uh, it can literally mean a full-body pummeling. This is not, they got slapped around and sent away. This man was abused and sent away empty-handed. And so not only this, is this illegal, it would have just been illegal to not give him what is rightfully his, but now this is criminal activity. When they beat this man and they send him away, this becomes an outrageous action to the Jew that is listening. Verse 11 is the owner's response. It says this, and he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully. And he sent sent him away empty-handed, and he sent yet a third. And this one also they wounded and they cast out. So he sends another servant. They beat them, treat them shamefully. He sends a third. And this is the Greek verb from which we get the English word for traumatize. What happens to these guys? I mean, this is real abuse over these servants. We would better understand it today as they left in critical condition. And he sends them away empty-handed time and time again. In Matthew's account, we actually continue to get some of the patience of the owner because he continues to send more servants. He sends another and another. Some, some were stoned. Some were even killed. And you have to remember to the audience, to the Jew that is hearing this story, this is outrageous activity. They would not believe this. They would not stand for this. And so the owner asked this question in verse 13, and the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? 
And this seems like a silly question, doesn't it? Especially if you're there, if you're a Jew in this audience, you're hearing this, what, what do you mean, what shall you do? You should take vengeance, right? An eye for an eye. A life for a life. That's what you should do. And that what would have happened in that day is uh, they would have gone to the authorities. The authorities would have sent a small militia to this vineyard. They would have taken it away, given it back to the owner, and punished and judged those wicked tenants. That's what you should have done. That's what the Jew is thinking. What do you mean, what should you do? After the first servant was sent away empty-handed and beaten, this is what you should have done. You should have taken vengeance. Why wait so long? This ought to be obvious. But again, we see the patience of this owner as we've seen throughout this entire process. And he's going to decide to try one more thing. He's going to try one last time. And in the end of verse 13, he says, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. They won't respect one of my servants. Surely they'll respect my son. Because in Jewish culture, the son or the heir had the rights, had the authority. The son or the heir could go on behalf of the father with the father's full authority as, the, as almost it was the father himself. He says, okay, you want to play hardball? We're going to, I'm going to send my son then. He's got my full authority and he's going to go. And this should have been the end of the whole thing. But it's not. It says in verse 14, But when, they, when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. They threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. They saw this son coming. They saw him coming. Note that they knew exactly who this was. They did not mistake this for another servant. It said they saw him. They said, oh, that's the heir. That's the son. They knew exactly who he was. They figured and they began to reason with one another. They began to plot with one another. This is a premeditated murder of the son. And they say, oh, that's the son, that's the heir, let's kill him. Because the Jewish law said if, if the father's dead and the heir is dead, the, the land falls to the workers of the land. The law also said that after three years, if the, if the, if the heir is not there or the owner is not there, the, the land falls to the workers of that land. Maybe they think they're getting close to that. Or maybe just in their wickedness, they think if we just kill everyone, we'll eventually get all of this. And they begin to, to plot and they take the son, they take the heir, and they kill him. They take him out of the city, they, or out of the vineyard, and they, they kill him. This is a shocking story. To us, yes. But to the Jew, again, that is there, that is in the temple, that is hearing Jesus tell this parable. This is absolutely outrageous. They would not stand for this. They would not believe it. They would not understand it. These are law-abiding Jews. They are trying to live a righteous life, trying to honor God. This is outrageous, criminal, illegal activity. And then in verse 15, Jesus says, What therefore will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Jesus has just ended the parable. That was it. 
The parable ends with the owner sends his son and they kill the son. End of parable. No ending is given. And Jesus ends the whole thing and then he asks this rhetorical question, what shall the owner do to these tenants? In Matthew's account, they actually answer. And they answer, as you would expect, vengeance. Go get those wicked tenants and kick them out. In Luke's account, they don't answer. Jesus answers, but it's a rhetorical question. In verse 16, he gives the answer, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now listen to this. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. Now wait a minute. That seems strange to anyone else? Because up to this point, all of the audience would have sympathized with the owner. Now, all of a sudden, they're saying, wait a minute, no, no, no. I mean, this is, if you look at the language, this is a strong emphatic. It's like they're saying, no, no way, no, no, God forbid it, this cannot happen, no. Strong language. And why up to this point would they sympathize with the owner and then all of a sudden there's this change? What changed? What does it mean? How are they understanding it? Because they're understanding something. You know, a lot of people think that uh, Jesus, um, because this is a prophetic parable, that in somehow, in some instance, Jesus allows this parable message to be understood in one instance. But they are understanding something. Something clicks in their minds. So what are they understanding? What would the Jew have understood in that circumstance? Well, let's walk back through it. Here's what they would have understood. It says that a man went to plant a vineyard. The man is God. That's obvious. God planted a vineyard. Then it says that the vineyard represents Israel. The vineyard he planted was Israel. This was God's chosen people, his chosen possession, his chosen nation. The imagery would be clear to them. A hedge of protection is put around them. God provides everything. He frees them from slavery. He provides everything they need. He leads them. He guides them. He gives them every spiritual and physical need that they have in their life. Hedge of protection is put around them. He cares for them. He watches for them. Then it says that he went on a long journey, which would signify, some believe, the 400 years of silence. That close of the Old Testament to the opening of the New Testament, God is silent for 400 years. No more thus saith the Lord. No more God working in certain ways. He was left on their own. And that's where these religious leaders would come in and start to set up their own systems. And they come in and they start to give their own input, create their own system of belief and what it looks like to follow God. It says he rented it out to some tenants. What are the tenants in the story? Those are the religious leaders. He went away and he lent his, tenured, his vineyard out. He rented it out to these tenants, which signifies the religious leaders. They are the ones that are supposed to keep the ground. They're the ones that are supposed to produce it to protect it, to nourish it, nourish it. This would be kings, 
priests predominantly, some self-appointed false prophets along the way. Any and everyone who had responsibility over the spiritual welfare of Israel would be the tenants. And then uh, he sends some servants to go get what is rightfully his. What does this signify? This signifies the prophets. Servants are sent multiple times to gather what is due to the owner. This, this is the prophets. The, the prophets all the way from the Old Testament back, to the ti- uh, back in the Old Testament to the time of John the Baptist were sent by God. Sent by God to always call people back to repentance, always call people back to, to God, back to what is true obedience, back to true faith. And if we know anything about the history of Israel, we know it's a, a history marked with severe abuse of the prophets. Jesus himself said that, didn't he, on the Sermon on the Mount? Just like they did before me to these prophets they're going to do to me. A severe and history of abuse to the prophets. Tradition tells us that Isaiah was sawn in half with a wooden saw. Jeremiah was constantly mistreated, thrown into a pit. Tradition says that the Jews stoned him to death. Ezekiel faced the same hatred and hostility. Amos had to flee for his own life. Zechariah was rejected. He was stoned. And Micah was pummeled and punched in the face. The history of Israel is a history of prophets coming to call people back to God and prophets being rejected, mistreated, abused, and killed. And this story, this parable, again, is a sweeping history of the nation of Israel up to this point. So after the, the servants, he sends the son. This is the obvious in the story, is it not? This represents Jesus Christ. This is the most obvious connection in the story. Son, sin, the owner is, sends his own son, representing Christ who is sent by the Father, on the Father's behalf, with the Father's full authority, to claim what is the Father. And remember, they knew he was the heir. And we see this in Scripture all the time. Even some of the, the, um, even some of the religious leaders say, we know you're of God. <laughs> Nobody could do the things that you do, Jesus, if you weren't from God. They knew he was from God. They knew he was, he was divine. They knew he was sent by God. They just could not accept it because Jesus was ushering in a new system and he was beginning to downplay the system that they had created. And so they understood. They, Jesus tells them what the owner is going to do, what God is going to do. He's essentially saying, I'm, I, I, I will come and destroy this broken religious system. I'll make a, a changing of the guard. And he says, I'm going I'm to take back what is mine and I'm going to give it to others. And who are the others in the story? Well, this would represent the followers of Christ. Certainly the disciples. And those followers of Christ that would come after his ascension, they're given a great commission to go and to make disciples. And they're going to begin to usher in this new system of belief.
And the crowd, they just got it. They understood that Jesus was saying that in, he's ushering in a new system. This is going to go against everything that their tradition had held. All of their religious history was about to change. A changing of the guard. Especially for these religious leaders who themselves were benefiting from their own system. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give it away. You're no longer going to have this. I'm going to give it to others. And they say, no, this can't happen. God forbid it, no, no. And then look at Jesus' response in verse 17. He looked directly at them and said, What then is that that is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And here Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8. And he's talking about this idea that will take place. Remember, this is a foretelling as well. That Jesus is a cornerstone. What is a cornerstone to? It adjoins two walls. And it holds as a foundation these two walls, these two separate walls. And a lot of people think that this is Jesus referring to the Jews and the Gentiles being brought together. And Jesus being the cornerstone. And we know that this happens through the disciples, especially through the Apostle Paul, right? He begins to take the message of Christ to the Gentiles. The message of Christ being the cornerstone that brings those two walls together. And Jesus is saying, I am the cornerstone. This is what's going to happen. The Son is either the Savior or the Judge of Israel. He's the cornerstone. You either receive him as that foundation or you will be crushed by it. Jesus is either Savior or Judge. And then in verse 19, here's where we see the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Because Jesus is looking back at them and he's saying, this whole system that you've created is not working. This is not what God had in mind. He showed them physically this by cleansing the temple the day before. This is not the system God had intended. And he says, a new system is coming where I'm the cornerstone of this system. And us who are Gentiles benefit from that. Because everything that Jesus said was going to happen, happened exactly how Jesus said it was going to happen. It says that very hour they wanted to kill Jesus. They were fed up with him. They couldn't take any more. But they feared the people because the people were there. So they didn't get their chance, but they're going to get their chance. Two days from now, they're going to get their chance. Where they'll put Jesus up on a cross and they'll kill him. And the premeditated murder of the Son of God will take place, just like in the parable. And Jesus foretold all of that, didn't he? He told his disciples, I have to, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be murdered. I'm going to die. That won't be the end of it, because three days after that, I'm going, to, I'm going to be raised back to life. He foretold that also. Three days later, he comes back to life. He's risen. 
He appears to his disciples, to many of his followers. He comes to a time where he's going to send back into heaven, and he gives his disciples a great commission. He says, you go, and you, pre- and you preach, and you, you make disciples, all the nations. It's no longer a blessed nation, it's a blessed people. And that happens. They go, and they begin to spread the gospel. In 70 AD, the Romans come, and they destroy everything. Just as Jesus foretold. it's going to all be destroyed. I mean, they destroyed everything. No stone was left standing. You can't even go and read about the genealogies of the high priests anymore. It's all destroyed. Their entire system, everything destroyed, just as Jesus foretold. And the disciples, they continue to do what Jesus told them to do. They go and they preach the gospel and it spreads and it spreads and Paul, he takes it to the Gentiles and it spreads and it spreads and 2,000 some years later, here we are, halfway around the world, followers of Christ, just as Jesus foretold. And this is why to me, I don't understand sometimes why people don't believe in Christ. Because if someone can say, this is going to happen, All of this is going to happen. And then now that happens, maybe we should listen to that guy. And that's what Jesus does. And he says that this system is not working. This is not how it was intended to be. You need a new system. Here's what the new system is going to be. And he lays it all out for them. And it happens word for word as Jesus prescribed. So I have one point for us this morning. (laughs) That's it, one point. And it's this, don't let following Jesus become a system of belief for you. Because I think we can do this. I I can do this. Uh, It can become, okay, here's what following Jesus means. It means this, then this, then this, then this. And then I repeat, and then I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and I do this. And then I repeat, maybe I forgot this one. Oh, okay, I'll add that one back. And I repeat, and what is that? A system of belief. And hasn't God called us to more than that? Hasn't he called us to mission and to purpose? You want to know what the system of belief is that we should be living in? Love God and love others. He made it real simple. He said, hey man, they, they've, they've complicated this, this system. They had 600 and some laws that you had to follow. He said, no, no, no. Let me give you two. Love God, love others. That's it. Because if you love God, you're going to honor him. You're going to worship him. All of these things are going to fall in that category. But if you love God, and there it is, you're going to honor him. You're going to glorify him. And if you love others, what are you going to do? You're going to tell them about Jesus Christ. And you're going to love them with a love that the world does not see and the world does not know. This is the system that we should be living in. It's not complicated. Like these religious leaders were making it. It's very simple. Love God, love others. Jesus is not interested in our broken systems of belief. He's interested in our broken hearts of disbelief. He wants us to be changed from the inside out, not to follow a system. He wants our hearts. And I know for me, I I read these types of parables and sometimes I need to realize that I make it a system of belief oftentimes. I forget that I'm given a, a purpose and a mission and that it is very simple. I need to focus on loving God, and I need to focus on loving people. 
And if I can do those things, that's the system God wants for me. And that's the system that he wants for us. We're about to enter into a season that we all look forward to. Well, hopefully we look forward to it. But you take away all the trappings of Christmas. All the things that you, all the traditions that you enjoy and you love, take those things away and you just have the simple birth of a Savior who has come into the world to save his creation. Would that be enough for you? Let's not let this Advent season be a system of belief. Let it, let it be a belief in this Savior who has come and a, a, a recommitment in our lives to what he has done for us. And let's love God and let's love others and let's do that well. And I know that for many of us, we can get trapped in the rut of life and the rut of faith and we can go over and over through the motions and it becomes a system of belief. And so my, my call to us this morning and to myself is let's not make it a system and if we are, it's simple, love God and love others. And for many of you this morning, if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, I, I pray that you would consider that. I pray that you would see a story like this and see someone who foretells all of these things and then those things happen exactly how he said they were going to happen. And I, I would pray that you would put your trust and your faith and your hope in that man. Let everything else be worked out later. Trust in Jesus. In a minute, we're going to have a moment of response where you can do that. You can come and we would love to talk to you about that, to pray with you about that. You can do that where you're, you're seated. But for the rest of us, I just want us to call, just to call us back to this idea that God has put us on purpose and on mission. Don't overcomplicate it. Let's focus on loving him and let's focus on loving each other. And let's let everything else work itself out. And maybe for you, you need a moment to recommit that in your heart, in your life. And as we have a time of response, I pray that you would do that. If you'd like to pray with one of us, please come. We would love to pray with you about that. If you'd like to come with any prayer request, please come. Maybe you want to join the church. We'd love to receive you at this time as well. It's not a system. It's a gracious, patient, heavenly Father who calls us to love him well and to love others well. So Father, we pray that you would help us to do that. That sometimes, God, we admit to you that we often lose track and lose sight of those sim simple things and we get into a rut spiritually and we make it about a system of following you instead of the simplicity of following you, which is just to love you and to love others. Help us. Forgive us for how we've fallen short in that and help us, God. Especially as we enter into this Advent season to, to love you well for what you have done. To love others well. There are so many that need the love of Christ in their life now, more than ever. And we thank you for your great patience with us for your great love for us. And we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.